This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Remnant Radio. Today, we're going to be talking about how to how, how we read scripture through a Western worldview and how that affects our reading of the scriptures. It's going to be an exciting episode. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Guys, I'm going solo today. You will see that Michael Roundtree is not in studio with us as he is on vacation, Uh, so I will... Uh, probably not be answering too many of the questions in the video chat as we are live. Uh, fortunately for us, uh, read a phenomenal book uh, last couple of weeks, taking me a lot of time to process and go through. I actually sent the email uh, the week that I read the book. They were gracious enough to come on. Uh, both uh, Brandon and Randy are with us to discuss their book uh, on the Western worldview and how we read the scripture. Uh, and it's going to be an enlightening conversation today, so I want you guys to stay tuned. If, if you're familiar your, your first time being with us, I want to remind you that Remnant Radio is entirely crowdfunded. Uh, so if you've been blessed by this ministry and you want to support us, there are links in the description of all of our videos. Uh, you can give on PayPal, which is like a one-time gift, or you can give on Patreon. Uh, as low as five bucks a month, you get access to extra content. Uh, for example, we're going through a, a book by Walter Martin called The Kingdom of the Cults, where we're just reading a chapter at a time, uh, reading through that chapter, discussing it. About 30 or 40 of us uh, get together on Patreon and discuss the book together. It's a good time to get to know each other, hang out, learn some stuff. But we've got other content on uh, Patreon as well, how to discern discernment ministries. Uh, we've got videos on uh, uh, Stephen Bancars came on, talked to us about cult stuff and uh, kind of some of the charismatic wackiness. And there's really, really great stuff over there on Patreon that you guys need to check out. But without further ado, I want to introduce you to our guests. Uh, for both uh, Brandon and Randy, w- would you guys introduce us to yourself and your ministry before we dive into the subject? today? Sure, I'll start. Um, my name is Brandon O'Brien, and I'm leaving, living in Phoenix, Arizona with my wife and two kids, um, and I'm director of content development and distribution for Redeemer City to City, which is based in Manhattan um, and is a global church planting resourcing organization. And I'm Randy. My, uh, the name on the book will say E. Randolph Richards. So I'm uh, Randy Richards. I'm a professor of New Testament. I'm currently serving, blessed to serve, as the provost at Palm Beach Atlantic University in South Florida. So it's sunny down here, and I assume it's probably sunny in Phoenix. (laughs) Yeah, a little too sunny. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay, well, tell us, guys, about this book that you guys worked on together, Misreading Scripture Through a Western Worldview, or Western Eyes is, is the title of the book. A link of the book is in the description of the video. You guys can pick it up and check it out. Uh, man, a lot of thought-provoking stuff in the book, uh, stuff that I even had to uh, run by a couple of my buddies. And, what do you think about this? And what do you th-? It was very good at conversation starting. A lot of stuff I was completely oblivious to uh, that really kind of enlightened my eyes in a couple of areas. But, but one of the things that I want to ask just right up front, because we know uh, you, were t- you were telling me that this book was published in 2010, right? And you started writing it even before that. So the kind of culturally charged language of Westerners and, uh, and, and kind of culture, eth- ethnicities uh, is really charged language right now in the West. Uh, so it's probably worth getting this up and out there so that when people are watching this video, they know what we're not talking about. So when, when you guys wrote this book, was this a book, an attempt to kind of like uh, undermine Western evangelicals or to, to demonize Western views? Um, you know, is it the, the, the male white patriarchy that you guys are trying to, you know, <laughs> both white male guys trying to do away <laughs> with? Um, uh, wh- like, what's the objective of this book? Well, this Yuck. is not one of those tired, sad books that just bash the West. I hate those. Yeah. <laughs> um, the West has been a, a gift from the Lord to the church. Um, there are so many wonderful things that the West does. Um, we exemplify uh, the Christian faith in certain areas so very, very well. We're, in, in many ways, we're role models on forgiveness, on generosity. There's, mm. there's wonderful things that Westerners do. But having said that, there's also wonderful things that Easterners do. Um, there could be a book, Misreading Scripture Through Eastern Eyes. Someone else would have to write it. We couldn't write it. <laughs> but as a Westerner, there are just certain things I don't see. It's not that I in, intend to not see them. I just don't see them because the way I was raised just taught me to notice certain things and not notice other things. Brandon, help me out. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the the only thing I would add is that one particular challenge of being Western and the Western lens is that we do tend to um, perceive it as entirely objective. So it's it's not just a perspective, it's the right perspective. Um, and it's harder for us then to see that because that's that's sort of how we've talked about Western culture and Western progress, et cetera, f- for many years. Um, it's easier for uh, people outside of Western culture to recognize how culture affects your perception of things. Um, and so on the one hand, we're, we don't think the West gets more things wrong than other places. We do think on the one hand that we're Western writers, which is why we're talking about the, the, uh, the worldview that we're a part of. Um, and I do think it, while it doesn't have more challenges, it probably has unique challenges just because of world history and, and kind of the way uh, a Western perspective has dominated in intellectual um, and um, literary and, and even biblical studies globally. Western interpretations are often the default um, because of the way uh, Christian education and other things developed. And so we do think it's important. Um, and I th- I'm increasingly aware that the what we describe as kind of Western impulses are uh, we're kind of increasingly becoming global in the sense that a lot of Christian education worldwide has 
a Western heritage. And mm -hmm. so we've found actually, uh, or I've found in, in speaking with non-Western Christians that they've found this helpful in helping to identify where they may be Korean at home and in their life. But then when they read the scriptures, they feel a sense of... Uh, Discontinuity. Discontinuity and maybe distrust of their own instincts. And mm. we're able to say, well, maybe that distrust comes because you're trying to read this both from a Western point of view because of your education and, and from a non-Western point of view because of your you know, heritage and, and family and culture. And that has brought some clarity, um, yeah, for, for people from all over the world. And I've, I've been really humbled by that experience. So let me let me keep going down this train of thought and asking because you mentioned Western objectivity, like we, we think that that's the objective truth, the Western interpretation. Now now you would say I, I believe that um, the, the, what are our, the what is the authorial intent? What the author's intent of the scriptures is objectively true, right? Like there is objective truth, but everyone comes at this with a cultural worldview and our goal is to understand this with the authorial intent and kind of shed our cultural worldview so that we can kind of assume the author's worldview so that we can really understand what the scriptures mean is that would that be correct um yeah i'll start this one and then randy can clean up the mess <laughs> if i <laughs> go off the rails yeah i think um for sure we certainly believe that the bible is uh has a divine author and human authors, and so God intends for the scriptures to mean something, and then the human authors uh, had a specific message that they were trying to communicate with the help of the Holy Spirit, um, and we believe that that communication was culturally conditioned, right? So uh, the author of Matthew is not first and foremost writing for me. Uh, he's first and foremost writing for an audience that was contemporary That's right, to yeah. himself, right? So he's writing in language and with assumptions and um, it within kind of cultural frameworks that would have made sense for his original audience. We're now a couple thousand years and many thousands of miles removed from that culture in which those that story was written to make sense. Um, and so we want to figure out how we can access that story. And some people would say that it's as simple as saying, well, let's reconstruct the ancient world or let's reconstruct, you know, the, the context and circumstances in which these things happened. And I think that's absolutely an important part of the process. But because of our Western lenses, we'll still interpret that historical context through our own set of presuppositions. Um, and so when we hear household, we're very likely to hear, you know, husband, wife, one and a half children or whatever the average is when household meant something much broader than that in um, the first century world. Or when we read about the nation or taxation or whatever it is, we're going to import um, our, our own presuppositions about those things, even as we're reading the cultural background the things that seem important to us or relevant to us or clarifying to us are going to have to pass through our own, um, you know, contemporary Western point of view. And so if we're not aware of it, we can't be aware of what influence our presuppositions have when we read. Um, and I think maybe to your last point that our, I don't know that the goal is to get rid of our filters, our, our modern filters, but I think it's to um, become increasingly aware of them and then and and temper them I, like i've worn glasses since i was about 10 years old so this is a helpful illustration for me like 
I get a new prescription every few years, I can't ever take the glasses off. I can just get a sharper prescription, right, to see uh, things more clearly. And I think that what we're advocating for is something like that. You can't ever take your Western lenses off, um, but you can add uh, layers of awareness, other filters, et cetera, that kind of help sharpen um, the vision to see what you wouldn't have seen or to stop over-interpreting what just jumps out from you at the page because of, uh, of those Western lenses. But I'm going to stop there. Randy, you want to pick up on any of that? Okay, I'll clean up that mess. So <laughs> <laughs> I think the, uh, we, one of the sayings we, we tried to use in the book was the most important things in a culture go without being said. You don't talk yeah. about it because everybody knows it. Right. Um, one of the interesting uh, aspects of our culture, Western culture, particularly the U.S. culture, and, and to a large extent the U.K. culture, uh, is called a low-context culture. We, we don't assume everybody understands everything, so we'll tend to explain things a little bit more. Many cultures in the world and the biblical culture were a high-context culture, so they just left things unsaid because everybody knew that. And so uh, they'll give us just a little hint of a story, um, and that's enough for us to set the boundary markers. In the story of the patriarch Joseph, the guy with the coat of many colors, that sort of thing. The first story um, that we're told about Joseph is that he rats on his brothers. Hmm. Well, we think, oh, that's a funny little fun way to start a story. No, <laughs> they're setting up... Uh, the way the whole story is going to go, because a whole lot went without being said. Uh, I'll mention to my students, Joseph was the oldest brother. And they'll say, no, no, he wasn't. Uh, and then they'll start listing all the other brothers. I said, oh, those are brothers of the other wife. And they'll say, yes, but you know, in our culture, you know, once you're a blended family, you're a blended family. <laughs> but they would, they would have very clear lines. So you have two families under uh, Jacob. And so Joseph is the other brother, and the first story we read is division between the two sets of brothers. And it's hmm. going to end up setting up the entire story of Jacob and Joseph. Hmm. Muted myself, sorry. No, that's great. That's, <laughs> I, I love that. Um, one of the things that I, I want to talk about is mores. You, you mentioned it in your book, and you kind of just touched on it just th then, about things that left unsaid. What are cultural mores, and how do they help us understand Scripture and our own culture better. Well, Brandon, do you want to take a <laughs> stab at that first? <laughs> okay. Um, mores are uh, cultural values. For instance, a something that is not a more is um, harassment. Someone feeling harassed, like a woman feeling harassed. That's that that is a genuine value. Uh, you you do not want to be harassed. But the way in which someone is harassed could be a cultural moray or a cultural value. So uh, in our culture, a wolf whistling is strictly a uh, no-no. Or I, I would suppose winking at a woman would could be a form of harassment. But in other cultures, that might have a completely different meaning. So cultural mores tend to be um, values that uh, don't go down to a particular virtue or vice, although they may be connected. Brandon, you're going to have to help me here. <laughs> yeah, I think they're, they, um, yeah, the uh, amore is a kind of baseline acceptable um, uh, 
cultural value that I think is very local. So I think of things like uh, modesty. So there's certain you know, certain expectations about, you know, how much skin can you show, right? And I think uh, in, when you dress, and I think that's a modesty could be a value that's held across a wide uh, geographic area, for example. One of the things that you guys said in your book that I actually use commonly and I use on this show frequently is I don't drink or chew or go with girls who do. And yeah, you're like, that's, that, right. that's how you <laughs> opened the chapter on mores, right? That's right. Well, and I had good friends. So I grew up in Northwest Arkansas where we, yeah, we're not permitted to drink alcohol, uh, you know, use tobacco, do et cetera. But we played cards at every family and church event. And then I had friends who grew up in Kansas City, just a couple hours north. And for them, the like card playing was, uh, you know, something that in the kind of conservative Christian circles that they just couldn't do. And so that's one of those things that where probably the deep value is conformity to the world. You don't do what the world does, right? But then there's these sort of like local values of, uh, or local ways of acting that out. And so those, that would be those mores, right? They're the things that you and I could agree on the value and then disagree on whether, uh, maybe we both think that modesty is a value, but I think you're being a modest and you think that I'm being a modest, right? Because of the way we're dressed or because of the way we spend our money or, or whatever it is. And so I think that, you know, finances, sex, I think the difference between, you know, um, in American Western culture, uh, we're kind of comfortable with violence in movies and we're uncomfortable with sex in movies. Um, that's a sort of a, uh, in Western culture, that's different in Europe. They're very uncomfortable with violence in movies and more comfortable with sex in movies. And so there's these kinds of things that they do sort of float on the surface. You may share values beneath them, but the, the mores change from place to place and can be pretty dramatically different, even though they're, they're trying to kind of preserve the same cultural values. Yeah, I, I, I grew up in the Assemblies of God as a kid, uh, and one of the, the running jokes that I would hear growing up is, you know, we don't believe in premarital sex because it may lead to dancing, you know, uh, <laughs> <Right>. because dancing <laughs> was so demonized. Uh, right. so, so if we've got these, these cultural mores, um, and to your point, you're not trying to get us to get rid of our cultural mores, but, but if we have this worldview, if we have these, these mores that we're reading and we're reading scripture, and then we're, I think one of the illustrations you gave was, and I, I forget who this was or where this was, uh, but it was in an Eastern context, and uh, there was this heinous sin that these people had committed, and you're talking to the oh. elders about it. Uh, can, you un- can you unpack this story, this, this, this yeah, horribly heinous uh, sin? Yeah, that one <laughs> fell to me. Um, I was uh, uh, preaching in a village in, I think it was in Borneo, and after you, you preach, then you, you uh, sit down in a house while they cook uh, dinner or lunch, and, uh, and I was sitting around with the pastors, and they said, uh, could you help us with a difficult pastoral problem? And I thought, sure, I'm the missionary. I can, I can do that. And they said, we have this couple who uh, fled to our village. They had just committed a, a grievous, a grievous hmm. sin. In their own village and had to leave and they came to ours they've been here about 10 years living wonderful godly lives and they would like to join our church but we just don't know if they can i said well why not they said well it was a very serious sin pastor i hmm. said okay and i realized i'm not going to be able to answer their question without knowing what it was i mean was there, were they axe murderers or? and so <laughs> uh, i said well what was the sin and they didn't want to tell me and finally i said well I, I have to know and they said well um, they, they married on the run. 
uh, which in our culture we call eloping. And, uh, and I said, well, what's wrong with that? And they looked at me just aghast, and they said, <laughs> uh, Pastor, have you never read Paul? Well, since I had done my Ph.D. on Paul, I thought, <laughs> I, I don't know, I thought I'd read Paul. I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, you know, Paul says, children, obey your parents. And, and we know, we know, they don't always obey their uh, parents, but in probably the most important decision in their lives, surely we should expect them to obey their parents. And what I realized was my Western lens had given that verse an expiration date. It quit applying once you turned 18. Hmm. And, uh, and, of course, Paul didn't say that. And that's when I actually began my journey of hmm. wondering if I was misreading Scripture with Western eyes. So let me, let me ask you that. That's kind of a good follow-up question there is, would it be your— because un- you, you said you got your Ph.D. in Paul. Do you, do you think part of this has to do with your academic research on, hmm. on context and, and exegesis and really trying to understand authorial intent? Or has it been your mission's work uh, with other cultures that causes you to realize, man, maybe I'm reading this thing wrong? Um, what well, do you Josh, think? I'm going to push back and, and say that uh, you're being very Aristotelian, very Western there, <laughs> by saying it's either this or that. And so often the answer is yes, it's both of yeah. those. Um, Brandon is theologically, he's trained in theology, particularly historical theology, and that is a big factor in, mm-hmm. in the way he saw certain things. And I'm trained in exegesis, historical context, and that was a big factor. But both he and I encountered folks from other cultures, and we realized, whoa, they're just not seeing that the same way. So I'd have to say it was both and that uh, led to this. Yeah, and I think maybe I could connect to Mores here real quick, because I think one of my early uh, points of uh, awareness about all of this in uh, my historical theological studies was reading people like Martin Luther, who, from our point of view, are part of our Western heritage, right? Part of the Western theological heritage. Um, And, you know, I wasn't allowed to drink uh, alcohol growing up on religious grounds, but when Martin would travel around preaching and irritating the Pope, you know, the first thing he did when he got <laughs> to a new village is he would write his wife, Katie, a letter, and he would often uh, comment on the quality of the beer in the local That's villages, right. right? Yeah. And so I think, so I'm here, I'm thinking, well, who, who is more Protestant, you know, at some level than Martin Luther? And why does he have no problem with... Uh, drinking alcohol on biblical grounds, and yet we do, right? And then he would say things a lot of the reformers did, and a lot of folks through the you know 18th and 19th century, which is kind of which my area of of research would say things like, as any reasonable person would agree, and then make some claim. And about half the time, I disagreed with the claim, and I thought, <laughs> but I consider myself pretty reasonable, right? And so what their what their what they're calling kind of baseline reasonable is really those things that go without being said in their culture. It's the cultural assumptions that you can assume are widespread enough that you all share them, and so you can argue from them, right? You don't have to, you don't have to convince anybody there and then build from there. You just start with the shared assumptions. Um, and I think as I began to see that in my uh, historical work and see how it even uh, played out in, in my own research with people in the same generation— um, in the same era of Christian history, both of them Christians could disagree on major theological um, issues. Very often that's because they don't exactly share the same 
social mm -hmm. context or something, right? So there's these factors that are helping some of them see certain things and making them blind to other things. Um, and that, you know, it, and so I was kind of seeing it through this sort of uh, culture change through time. And Randy was uh, had these experiences, sort of cultural change in the same time, but across, you know, um, continents. And, uh, and so we sort of started to think about these things together uh, in and how those things affect what we see when we read. And that's really what we're, we're trying to get to is that certain mores, I, I was thinking as Randy was talking about like the, the language in the New Testament letters about foot washing or wearing a veil um, in, uh, in worship or things like that. There are Christians who observe foot washing as a, as a ordinance. And there are Christian traditions where women will wear a veil where, um, you know, in worship, but for the most part, we take those things without even thinking about it. We just say, well, that's cultural. And so that doesn't apply to us. Mm -hmm. Um, and what I'm curious about, I think what we're both curious about is saying, well, hang on a second, by what measure <laughs> do we just instinctively decide that that's cultural, that it doesn't apply? And then what other things do we assume are his, uh, universal, yeah. yeah, universal sort of, um, timeless truths that may in fact be the result of us reading back our own kind of cultural assumptions into the text. So let's talk about the average evangelical who's hearing this broadcast. They're going, well, crud, I'll never understand the Bible now. Now it's way too complicated. <laughs> I've got a Western worldview. I can't understand the scripture. It wasn't written from a Western worldview. I have all of these assumptions coming into the text uh, I've got all these cultural mores that I have when I'm reading it. They have all these cultural mores that they have when they're reading it. And to your point, it's not like yeah. the Eastern worldview is doesn't have its own challenges when coming to Scripture, right? The Western worldview has its challenges when it comes to Scripture. So, so none of us get the answer. Is there is there a way that we we ever come into a knowledge of the truth? Can you maybe liberate the conscience of people who are watching this, going, "Well, great, I, I need a P three PhDs before I can understand the Bible." Uh, yeah. I would say first. Uh, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Uh, in the end, the Holy Spirit brings understanding. Um, I came to faith, uh, read, read to through a King James Bible. And, you know, I probably didn't understand half of what was being said. But the Holy Spirit worked in my life. The Holy Spirit continues to work in the lives of people. Um, the, the goal is not to be able to read the Bible. There are, everyone listening is already able to read the Bible. We're working, how do we read it better? How do we look at something mm, that's and good. understand it better? Mm. And that's that's the goal. So when Brandon talked about shared uh, assumptions that maybe our Western view causes us to latch on, um, when uh, all of our readers can re read the story of Joseph, the patriarch, coat of many colors, and, and we can get uh, enormous blessings out of the various mm. parts of the story. But... Uh, one of the ways our shared assumptions come in, most Westerners have built into us kind of the American success story. You know, the little, the boy out in the country, um, sometimes he has to leave home for some particular reason, sometimes strife at home or whatever, moves to the big city, overcomes adversity, and then finally strikes it big and is a big success, and then his family loves and admires him. Well, that's an American <laughs> success story. What's ironic is I then squeeze Joseph into that mold. And so the very things that the biblical writer expected him to be 
to be appalled at, I'm actually admiring. I'm admiring the fact that Joseph um, goes a different direction than his brothers and that Joseph stands on his own and that he does all of these things. And so the very things I'm supposed to be aghast that he's doing, um, my culture has turned it into heroic values. So to me, the end of the story was when Joseph is elevated to second in command in Egypt. And then the whole rest of the Joseph story is a long kind of boring epilogue. But actually, Joseph getting to second in command in Egypt is halfway through the story. Um, The point of the story is actually the restoration of Jacob to his family. Um, I remember uh, vividly that when the first time the brothers, Joseph and his brothers, have conflict, somebody stood up, a Middle Easterner, and said, where's Jacob? Where's Jacob? And my first thought was, what? My thought was, well, that was the previous chapter. We've moved on. Jacob's done. <laughs> um, and he looked and he said, it, of course brothers fight. It's what brothers do. But it's the father's responsibility to make sure that the brothers remain united. Hmm. And hmm. that's when I began to realize this story that I thought was the story of Jacob overcoming adversity is actually the story of the restoration of Jacob's family. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. Brandon. Yeah, I, so I, I'm with Randy I, that I think the first and fundamental factor is the work of the Holy Spirit, which we have a hard time. That's part of our Western lens is we acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is there as Western Christians. But like even in our creeds, we have all these things. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, you know, et cetera. And then we get and in the Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> and so we don't really know what to do with them um, or how to let him how to let the spirit do its work, right? Um, mm-hmm. Without trying to control it and et cetera. And so part of it is trusting that the spirit's going to do what the spirit does when we read. I think the thing I would add that Randy has illustrated really beautifully here is that I don't think we were ever intended to interpret the scriptures alone. Um, and a lot of our trouble comes when we uh, read the text from our own point of view. And then really all we have to, to judge the meaning of it is our own point of view. Um, and then we'll pull in a teacher or preacher that we like to bring clarity, but very often the reason we like that teacher or preacher is because they share our point of view. And so it helps us to see some things that we might have missed, but it doesn't really fundamentally point out our, um, you know, our presuppositions that may be obscuring something. Oh, yeah. And in my experience, the people who know my blind spots best are people who have different ones. And so if I'm reading the text with somebody that I disagree with, um, or who I look at this, the, the passage and I get like my impulsive reaction is to say, Oh, I think it means this. And their instinctive reaction is something different. I think we're trained to, to view that as dangerous, uh, theological conflict, but I think it's actually a gift. So if I can pause for a second and then say, why is it that you immediately come to that conclusion and I immediately come to this other conclusion? We're both reading the same words on the page. Um, Is it because we have some kind of different assumption operating in the background? And if if anybody I think who can expose some uh, unconscious instinct that I have that is making me jump to conclusions that that person's giving me a gift and so i think it's at a certain level it's we have to you know 
develop a capacity for disagreement because that disagreement can be really uh, fruitful for us and for the person that we're engaging. Um, and it's helpful when that's across a, a really broad uh, ethnic or geographic national, you know, um, uh, divide. Somebody who's re reading who's very different from we, from me. But I think actually people in the United States, if I'm reading across like class lines, um, here's just a really quick example. I think if you're middle class and up, you're really attracted to sayings about money from Proverbs. Uh, if you're working class and down, you're probably really attracted to sayings about money from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so, and they're both biblical, but yeah. You know, why is it that I am inclined to look at this thing about saving and putting away from a rainy day, and this other person is, is inclined to gravitate to those passages about daily bread and don't worry about tomorrow and, you know, et cetera? Um, if, if we can have a conversation together, then we, we can help expose our own and each other's uh, presuppositions, right? Um, Josh, uh, so. Josh, let me pick up on something that Brandon just said. It's not always in the disagreement it's sometimes in just noticing right. uh their reaction to the text that's different from mine in the right. story where uh abraham is in the tent and the three visitors come to visit him uh, and he calls sarah and he says get the finest wheat and make bread and prepare a great meal well in this story with some middle eastern friends uh, we're, we're reading along, and then Sarah brings the meal, and they all go, ah, look at that. And I thought, look at what? And they said, look, look, didn't you see? Didn't you notice? I said, notice what? And they said, she didn't bring any bread. I looked back at the verse again. Son of a gun, she didn't bring any bread. Uh, he said, you know, Sarah has been sabotaging all along, all through this story. Well, uh, you know, and so it ended up creating a great uh, dialogue. So mm -hmm. just as Brandon pointed out, he noticed sometimes a different class will will read a text differently than I might or a different culture may read a text differently. That helps me to notice, well, are they latching onto the wrong thing or am I latching onto the wrong thing? Mm -hmm. uh, because in the end, the goal is to read scripture. To go back to your comment, Josh, it is authorial intent. What did the, what did God intend us to say? We're not doing what used to be called reader response criticism, where I can just say, well, what the verse means to me. Mm -hmm. Reader response is great with poetry and things where it doesn't have authority. But, you know, I, I, I'm not allowed to read a response a stop sign. You know, I'm, I'm not allowed to read a response <laughs> to my that. phone bill. You yeah. know, I'm not allowed to get my phone bill and say, well, what this bill means to me no. is such... Don't no, you wish it did, have authority, you have to go with the authorial intent. And so yeah. since we believe Scripture has authority, then authorial intent is important. But then I need help, as Brandon says, mm. a community to help me read it better. Mm -hmm. No, I like that because what you're talking about is a, a humble anthropology. Um, and I think Ke Kevin Van Hooser mentions this when you talked about like being led by the Spirit. Um, if, if I'm gonna have this humble anthropology, I'm gonna realize that I'm a broken, fallen person who has uh, fallen faculties, fallen reasoning. That I'm not gonna have a, a perfect knowledge of the truth the first time I hear it. Um, but but it's a process of growing into that of being conformed into this image and nature of Christ in my mind and my knowledge, my faith, my trust of Jesus, and all these different areas. And I think Van Hooser talked about um, uh, sola scriptura being 
understood through the lens of sola gratia or the the grace of God, and that that in trusting in God's grace and in God's power that we can understand the scriptures, that yeah. that to really understand the scriptures rightfully is to understand our broken anthropology and that the Spirit is leading us into that truth and to, to trust God in that process. So I, I love that. That's great. Hmm. Um, a couple things. I want to talk about Western individualism, but I also want to talk about honor-shame culture. So I don't know if we'll have time to to dive really deeply into this but but i've noticed this myself when i'm uh with my kids we just went to a movie uh i think it's called spirit um and uh my, my daughter wanted to go see this movie commercials have been out you know first time we've been <laughs> to the movie theaters since covid right we don't watch movies a lot in theaters anyway but we, we get back in the theater we're watching this movie and the entire premise of the film is daughter <laughs> spoiler alert for a child's film um uh <laughs> the child goes to live with dad because she upset grandpa um, uh, backstory, mom died. She's now with dad. Mom died of a horse accident. She, daughter really wants to ride horses. Dad doesn't want her to lost his wife on a horse. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, the whole theme of the movie is daughter rebels against dad because she wants to do what she wants to do. This is just who she is. She just loves horses and riding horses. So the whole theme of the film is rebel against cultural norms, rebel against authority, disagree, just just be yourself, be this wild and free spirit, um, just like this horse, and, and, and really just do what you want. That's the most important thing is to be true to yourself. Um, and that that just seems to be a rampant theme in tons of films, tons of entertainment, to be true to yourself. Most of the, even the action films that are out there are how does this one hero, without relying on absolutely anyone, overcome all of the... Like, <laughs> All these insurmountable, like John Wick, you're gonna, you're gonna yeah. drop like seven thousand <laughs> bodies. One guy, um, uh, clearly Brandon knows what I'm talking about. He's getting a couple of chuckles in, um, but like uh, it's 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 a very interesting thing. Western individualism. How does Western individualism prevent us uh, from from, or maybe give us some examples of how Western individualism uh, may cause us to misread certain texts? Yeah. Well, first, uh, let's go back to the Spirit movie. Our mm-hmm. Western individualism keeps us probably from even noticing that this movie is, isn't just uh, a cultural issue. I would say it's anti-biblical. Obeying your parents yeah, that's good. is a biblical that's right. uh, verse. Um, scripture says the heart of man is exceedingly wicked. Um, the one thing you shouldn't do is trust your own heart. Um, <laughs> and so, and yet even when we say that, Part of us just reacts to it, and and we want to scramble around and somewhere find a verse somewhere in the Bible where it says something about following your heart. Um, uh, When I talk to people and and they ask me, well, how do you know if you're an individualist or a collectivist? The best test I've ever heard is when somebody – you ask someone, would you allow your parents to pick your spouse? Hmm. And if the answer is – no, then you're an individualist. <laughs> yeah, I, that's a <laughs> that's funny. It's interesting you say that because I think there's a the the famous sort of test for racism is you know who, who would you allow your child to marry or who would you be excited? So maybe the marriage question is a good test for <laughs> a number of uh, different cultural assumptions. Um, yeah, I think that. It's funny, I was just thinking about this recently, how in American literature especially, I think America, American culture is still more individualistic than 
other Western cultures. Um, and so Europe and Canada and other places are, are more individualistic than parts of the West, but they still have a sort of communal identity that's a little bit different from, um, from American uh, individualism. And it goes way back to our founding of the, the, the kind of way we tell our stories is that you have this handful of people who left an oppressive situation in Europe to, to you know, plant a new colony here. Uh, and then from there, we always celebrate our leavers. And so it's not the people who stay in the community who That's right. we celebrate. It's the people who leave and go chart, you know, uh, a new uh, map, a new territory or, or begin a new movement or do whatever that we celebrate. Uh, and I think that that, um, you know, so we have that sort of impulse. Then we have kind of limits in language. So in when we read the Bible in English, um, there is not a proper plural you for English. Um, we have, I don't know. South. I'm from Texas. I'm so sorry. There, there, there is, there is No, they don't want to say it's proper, but you know, the apostle Paul agrees with me. Okay. That's I'm right. just saying. Well, I was going to say in the South, we have y'all, which works right. great. And you can even make it plural. It can be y'all's, you know, it's a, it's a really helpful, uh, word, but the, um, I, but in in sort of proper formal English, we don't have that plural, and so when we read the Bible, even when there are plural U's uh, in the text, they look just like a singular U. And so our impulse then, if it says, um, you know, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Um, we read that immediately as you singular have a body and it's a temple. Um, in the text, Randy, correct me if I'm wrong, he's the Greek scholar here, but the I believe that that you is plural, so it's not your individual body, it's your plural body that you share is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is a fundamentally different kind of way of thinking about that text. But we have a hard time seeing that because the language is vague, right? If you change it and say, do you not know that y'all's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, we get it, and then we think, Oh, that's an interesting take. Um, but we don't have that verbal clue. And so then we just push in all the other stuff that we already assume that it's about my personal fulfillment. It's about my yeah. personal growth. It's about my, you know, personal. And you get all those cult cultural mores like tattoos and drinking that, that often get ascribed to that verse. Like that's your body exactly is this, right. you know, it's this temple, right? So it's exactly. like, are you going to, are you going to put a, bumper sticker on the temple, you know? Exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. And so it's possible that a bumper sticker bumper sticker, and a bad diet and, and alcohol and tobacco are bad things, you know, to sure, put in sure, your sure. body, but that's not the passage to make that argument from that's because right. that's, that's, not, right. that's not the point. Um, and so I think what, you know, we have the sort of presumption. We, when we read the Bible, we assume that each of the passages are meant to be applied by each of us individually first, mm. and that there might be then some sort of group application too. I think the first readers of the scriptures would have done it the other way around, and they would have said, they would have defaulted, and I think a lot of the rest of the world would read it and say, uh, it's got some sort of, this applies to us, and then there may be some individual application as well. But that orientation of who comes first, I think, is... Uh, pretty significant. Um, and then there's a lot of things bound up in that, right? Like we think of church as primarily a voluntary association that comes from our individualism. We choose which groups we associate with and which we don't. Paul doesn't talk about the church that way. He talks about it as a body that's, that's made right. up of parts that are belong to one another, whether you like it or not. 
Um, and that's hard for us to even get our head around or to operationalize. So if we, we say, okay, Paul says it's, it's a body. It's not like a body. It is a body. Um, Christ is the head. We're the parts. Uh, then what? Our, immediately we're trying to figure out, okay, how do we talk about that to make sure that people come every Sunday or to get involved in program? Like we still have to overcome the individual impulse, you know, to um, the the way we would want to apply that. And so I think the that individualism is um, is such a deep uh, level commitment for us that it's hard for us to even recognize that that we're drawing on it because we often criticize it in the broader culture um we see what rampant individualism looks like and we 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 criticize it but we don't recognize that that same impulse is pretty strong uh in us as american christians as well well i'd like to ask randy a question specifically on that in like in ephesians right the the you versus y'all language like if we just take um, some of the opening passages in Ephesians, and it talks about you are seated in Christ, and we read that verse as, a, as an individualistic versus a kind of collectivistic uh, worldview as we're reading this passage, and, and we read it as you instead of y'all. Um, most of the argumentation, especially when we like, get to Romans 9, those the election passages, and people are debating corporate election versus individual election and those kinds of things, um, they're going to say it doesn't really matter if it's collective or individualistic because y'all is composed of yous. So you can read it individualistic because a bunch of individuals is a y'all, right? So, so Randy, help me understand, like, what are we missing uh, if we read Ephesians, for example, um, uh, you instead of y'all? And does it really do damage to the text when we read it that way? I think that the difference between an individualist and a collectivist is a fundamental piece of the difference between Easterners and Westerners. And most of the world and the biblical world were collectivists. And as Brandon pointed out, Americans are probably the most individualistic of all the individualist societies in the world. So we're Are you so saying far we stand alone? Stand. Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> Absolutely. As a group. As a group. So um so the example would be when we talk about the temple of the of the spirit, you know, we, we go to Paul because we like that phrase. Do you not know that your body and we think of it individually is a temple of the Holy Spirit? We don't go to first Peter two where he says, don't you know, you are all living stones being built up into a spiritual house. Well, that one you can't really individualize. That's right. So mm -hmm. for that reason, we, we don't like that verse as much. But in many ways, it's a much clearer image of the same concept that Paul was saying, that we are all pieces that build up into, into a one whole. It's the purpose of the body imagery. We're all pieces of the body that becomes the one body. So I do think that it does impact how we read um, Ephesians. You know, Paul's, the, the point of Ephesians really is unity. Well, you, you know, if it's just me individually, there's not much unity in, involved. You know, it's just me and Jesus. Uh, I mean, I grew up in the 70s, you know, when we were wandering around following little forest creatures. Um, but, uh, you know, and me and Jesus, that was the song, yeah, you know, in yeah. our chartreuse microbus there. But, the, uh, but that's really not the 
the the point of Ephesians, the point of Ephesians right. is taking down the dividing walls in order to make a oneness. Mm. Uh, Paul was arguing that from these different groups of the empire, uh, he was creating a new people. So um, as an individualist, I say I invite Jesus into my heart. And yet really the biblical image is Christ invites me to join his kingdom. That's good. Yeah. Um, that's a completely in. different image. I mean, in the end, I'm saved. Okay. Yes. But uh, it's not all about me. It, it just mm -hmm. fascinates me that uh, I'm responsible for my salvation, but I lead other people to the Lord. I never talk about somebody leading me to the Lord. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I found Jesus, but I lead other people to the Lord. It, you know, it's always me, 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 me. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I think if I can spitball from a theological point of view for a second, the implications of, you know, if 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 salvation is, if we're thinking of it purely in individualistic terms, like Randy is saying, then we're usually talking about it as what is the individual saved from, right? And it's saved from hell, saved mm -hmm. from eternity of separation. But we, it's harder than to talk about what are they saved for or what are they saved into. Yeah. And they're really saved into a community that exists for the kind of peacemaking of the world, right? So like the, the, the going and making disciples of all nations is kind of bringing the kingdom of God that we experience as a community ev everywhere we go. But that it's hard to have the imagination for that uh, reality, that kind of corporate reality of what the church is for, this church I'm saved into is for, if it's primarily individualistic what I'm saved from, and then that individualistic saving from often turns in, it's real easy to overlay our American obsession with personal development over that, right? So like I need to now, the gospel helps me figure out my vocation and have a good nuclear family and progress, you know, it's, so it, if it's all individual, it's real easy to kind of roll in all of the elements of American individualism as well. But if we're able to read it, it's disruptive then to read it as a kind of a corporate take first, because then you think, oh, then maybe my four, my, my 401k is not a central part <laughs> of this yeah. equation, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it just kind of disrupts the clean line between individual s salvation and individual self-fulfillment uh, or self-actualization if you have this church in the way that mm. you're actually kind of brought into. Um, and so I think that, I mean, we could spend a lot of time there in terms of application, but I think that the sometimes our reading from North America in the 21st century makes a lot of the, the Bible's vision of the church kind of impossible for us to even grasp um, until we've wrestled with it because it's pretty different. Um, uh, the expectations are pretty different from our, our larger kind of social expectations so man there's so much because we could, we could do an entire show between the two of you and and talking about just individualism we do an entire show <laughs> just talking about honor shame culture i think because that's that's one of the things that i found was the most enlightening and we only have hmm. 10 minutes left to talk about it um can you can you just like tell the the, the two stories that you mentioned that were the most like punch in the gut eye-opening oh obviously this is the way that this works hmm. um was the story of david asking about Bathsheba and Jesus hanging out with Pharisees and Sadducees and the way that he's responding to them in light of honor, shame culture versus right, wrong culture. And like how we understand that. Um, 
could you guys unpack that? Which whichever one of you decides. Yeah. You know, take a stab Randy, at you it. should you should start here with some definitions. Okay. Um, Josh, you are right. This is a complicated uh, topic. <laughs> in fact, um, in the ten years since uh, we wrote the book Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, I thought about it a long time, and I decided I needed to say a lot more about honor and shame, hmm. and a lot more about individualism. And so there was a follow-up book, Misreading Scripture with Individualist Eyes, that really talks a great deal about honor and shame. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's probably another show on another day. So um, <laughs> honor is, oh, it's hard to describe. And people say, can you give me a simple definition of honor? Uh, no. The most important <laughs> values in a culture usually are very difficult to define. Everybody knows what it means. We just, you have a hard time describing it. Uh, I've struggled in America to give an example, but maybe like being tough. You know, I I remember telling this female student one time who was being a bit of a pansy. I told her, look, you need to toughen (laughs) up. Um, And I knew that's exactly what I need to say. But I was in uh, uh, I was in Indonesia at the time and I realized they have no word for that. They have Mm -hmm. no no concept for just toughen up. Um, Mm -hmm. And in trying to describe it, I realized I have no idea how to describe it. Went home and talked to my wife. She said, I know exactly what you mean. She needed to toughen up. I said, exactly. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but we never could figure out how to describe it in Indonesia. Um, hmm. And so the most important values usually are shared and and well-defined, except they're difficult to define. Mm-hmm. And often when you try to describe them, you end up using about 10 words that go all the way around the idea. <laughs> and then the thing in the middle is what you meant. Yeah. I'll use a biblical example. Paul says that the Spirit produces fruit in our life, the fruit of the Spirit. It's singular. There's one mm-hmm. fruit. Well, what mm-hmm. is the fruit of the Spirit? Paul says, well, it's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are not the plural fruit of the Spirit. That thing in the middle is the fruit of the Spirit. And it's Mm -hmm. described by all these words. He probably could have added four or five more if he had wanted. Mm -hmm. So when you ask me to describe what is honor, it's the value a person feels who they are. But that sense of value comes from the community. The community has said, yes, this is who you are. Um, and you get honor, uh, some of it by being where you're born. The son of a king is of automatically more honor than the son of a carpenter or the son of a fisherman. Um, but you can also earn honor. And you can earn it by doing honorable things, going out and winning a battle, you know, Um Going out and winning a contest, an Olympic game, you can you can do it by writing great poetry. You can mm. become a great philosopher, or advancing in education. You can earn honor. So your honor is almost, I hate to use this illustration, but almost like a bank account, and you're storing up honor. It's your street cred. Um, yeah, in a sense, a street cred. That's mm-hmm. a, a good way to say it. But the community determines if you, it's the street cred. The, um, and by the way, that phrase arose in cultures that are a little less individualist than mm-hmm. a typical, uh, say, a white American culture. Yeah, you need to come hang out on my side of the tracks. You learn a little bit more <laughs> about street cred. No, what street cred is. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, right. yeah, so, yeah, no, back, back to um, you. Sorry. <laughs> so I, I can talk about the story of David and uh, Bathsheba. The story doesn't tell us a lot about um, Bathsheba. It doesn't even tell us her name. She's the daughter of Sheba, daughter of Shabbat. Um, there's some dispute over what that means. It probably means the African kingdom of Shabbat, which um, would actually make her Af- uh, African. Um, but we're not told her name because this story is really the story about David and Uriah. Uh, she's referred to as either Mrs. Uriah, the wife of Uriah, the wife of Uriah, the wife of Uriah, or the daughter of Sheba. Um, now, that's not uh, diminishing her personal value or anything like that, but um, we tend to paint her in a, uh, a role that our culture would say she's victimized, that sort of thing. Maybe she was, but the biblical text seems to suggest um, otherwise that um, she's uh, people didn't bathe for cleanliness back then. They bathed for ritual baths for various kinds of ceremonies, various cleansing, that sort of thing. And she is bathing on the roof of her house uh, right below the king's balcony. It's, it's possible. She, if we'd asked her, she might have said, oh my gosh, I didn't realize the king's balcony was right there. Um, you know, that does not seem the likely uh, conclusion. Anyone in the White House can tell you how many feet they are from the Oval Office. So um, the she is bathing, it seems pretty clear, in order to be uh, seen. David notices her and uh, and asks who, who she is. Now, in the ancient world, you were not allowed to know something the king couldn't know because that would suggest you knew things the king didn't know. So how do you tell the king something that he doesn't know? You would say, well, isn't that uh, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then the king would say, yes, of course it is. So yeah. um, we find that several <laughs> times in these biblical stories where, you know, uh, later when David is hiding um, and they say to Saul, isn't David hiding in, in Gadi? Saul would say, yes, of course he is, because you're not allowed <laughs> to know something the king is, doesn't know. Um, so David summons her. Who would know that David had summoned her? Well, probably everybody in the palace. Um, I mean, that's the kind of juicy gossip that everybody would know and love. So they, he summons her, um, and then he does not keep her. He sends her back. Um, there's a lot of honor stuff going on in the story, and we don't have time, as you pointed out, to get into this. We talk about it in that book. I talk about it again in the second book because this is the one place where Brandon and I got hammered the most by people who <laughs> just did not want to take those blinders off, and they just refused yeah. to see it. Well, well, if you guys what, want, y'all can come uh, back on. We'll do an entire show just on that to stir up more controversy <laughs> well, we surrounding your book because I thought uh, it was we, the best part of the book. We just might, uh, Josh, because um, what one of the critiquers said, uh, the word honor doesn't even occur in the story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was our point. Exactly. It's a moray. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. It's the elephant. It's actually the elephant in the room. So I don't, I don't think we have enough time to dive into the Jesus and the Pharisees, but I think that even stating what you just did about you can't respond to the king with an answer, but you give him a question because you don't want to shame him as if he doesn't have this kind of knowledge. And it just kind of, 
man, when you start reading Jesus and the Pharisees, and he actually responds to their questions with questions as a way to engage with them in a respectable way. And then other times he starts answering it with answers, like firm answers. And they're like, no one's going to answer. No one's going to ask another question because they're, they're losing street cred. They're, they're, they're being shamed publicly as he is answering questions as these are authoritative figures in the community. So, so yeah. w- w- that was a very layman's way of illustrating that you guys did a, a beautiful <laughs> way of, of, of articulating it in your book. You guys pick up the book. There's links of it in the description of this video. Uh, I, I would, just as we close out, uh, ask both of you to just kind of give me a quick nugget for people who are walking away. They just watched this interview. What's the one thing that you want them thinking about, meditating on, as they're reading Scripture that will help them uh, in this process of trying to... to to, to put on uh, the ancient Near Eastern glasses when reading Scripture, right? Like, how, how do you help yeah. them uh, get that clarity of the Scripture? And I'll start with yeah. uh, Brandon for that one. Good. I will try to be brief, although, as you've seen, that's not my strength. Um, the uh, It makes for a great I interview, this, though. <laughs> <laughs> good. <laughs> I think this, illust- this passage, 2 Samuel 11, is a great illustration of the of the thing I would like to send people with, which is to say that there are there are more clues in the passages of scripture than we that we read than we often realize that would help us catch these kinds of things um and so one thing that you can do is to read read slowly um we often prioritize coverage you know the whole bible in a year or the something instead of kind of slow comprehension um but I think in Second Samuel 11, if you, I, I like to have people just read through it and write down every time they hear somebody's name, write it, and then every time you see it after that, do a hash mark, and you realize pretty quick that David and Uriah are mentioned roughly the same number of times. Bathsheba is mentioned by by name, or you know, Bathsheba one time, um, and that that tells you that this story is maybe about David and Uriah, and if so, what do we do with that, right? So like, but the, the clues are right there. Um, the problem is when we read it from our point of view, Bathsheba like leaps off the page in part because sexual immorality is such a big deal for us, um, and honor and shame are not. And so we, we kind of write her into the story in ways that she doesn't quite appear there. And we write Uriah basically out of it, but the, the passage itself is giving us clues that this is about David and Uriah. So I think I would say like, slow down. If you notice something that seems like a pattern, like take note and just follow that trail. Why is it that Uriah is mentioned so many times here? Like, why does it seem to be that Bathsheba doesn't actually seem to matter much and Uriah does? And I think if you can follow those trails, the, the, the you know, kind of back to your original question, we're looking for the, the author's intention and the author has given clues throughout the scripture of what they're talking about. And reading carefully, reading closely won't solve every problem, but it will get us a lot further because we'll begin to see patterns and say, why does this come up so much? Why is this kind of, you know, this term or this phrase or this whatever, why does it repeat? Well, it's because it was important to the author. Mm -hmm. And that gives us a clue as to where we can go to get the answers um, about why that's That's super helpful. That's great. Randy, same question. Uh, What's that golden nugget you want people walking away thinking about? The kingdom of God represented on earth as the church is a family. So one of the things about family is we all sit at the same table, the Lord's table. We all have an equal seat at the table, and we need to listen to each other. And, uh, 
you know, we we had to learn. Our parents had to teach us to quit talking and let your brother talk, uh, those kinds of things, and learn to listen to each other. And when we listen, we'll start to hear, wow, they noticed things in the story I didn't uh, notice. And and uh, they picked up concepts and ideas that I didn't notice. But other times, I was the one who was able to provide the great insight into the verse. And so as we learn to uh, love and respect one another as members of the family of God under our Father, uh, then I think we'll become better readers of Scripture. In the end, just keep, as Brandon said, just keep reading it and let the uh, let the Spirit guide you and let the Lord bless you through His Word. That's great, guys. Thank you so much for coming on. And I, I think that we've we've scratched the surface today on on understanding worldview and and scripture and how we come to grips with all of that. And, and I just commend you guys for your work. I'd love to have you back on if you guys are interested to continue our dialogue and discussion on some of these things. Because again, I, I just think we're scratching the surface. Uh, really excited about uh, picking up maybe your second book. I haven't I haven't checked that one out yet. So uh, pick that one up and and read through that one as well. So guys, thank you so much for tuning in to this. Episode episode of Remnant Radio. Uh, as I reminded you at the front of the show, we are entirely crowdfunded. If you've been blessed by this and you want to give, there are links in the description, both on Patreon and PayPal. Really cool uh, uh, group discussions taking place there on Patreon, where we are discussing Walter Martin's Kingdom of the Cult book, uh, discussing different groups such as Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Christian Science, and all the other uh, uh, <laughs> spin-off cult groups uh, that use Christian vocabulary. And it's a, it's a really great way to both, uh, one, understand Orthodox Christian doctrine, and two, understand and discern the the unorthodox doctrines of some of these other groups. It's super helpful. Uh, and then for today's discussion, um, man, I, I want to encourage you. Uh, this, this is something I talk about when I uh, talk about... Uh, uh, understanding scripture and people who who get kind of overwhelmed with just there's so much data there's so much there's the scriptures alone and now I'm being told I've got to understand worldview and these different things and um, what I often try to encourage people with is like think of Spanish two in high school right everyone had to take Spanish one two and three in high school and most of them can't go to Mexico and order a burrito or find a bathroom um, <laughs> but if you want to do missions work some of the most advantageous things to do is to go live in that society like my friend who uh, went to Nepal, uh, learned the language by being there as a missionary in Nepal, having to use the language. Turns out immersion into something is the fastest way to learn something. Um, so I would just say yes and amen to what they're saying is dive into the scriptures, uh, read them frequently, read them regularly, read them slowly. Uh, and those kinds of things help immerse you into the language of scripture and the worldview of scripture. And that'll, that'll help you probably more than anything uh, when it comes to understanding God's word. So, uh, guys, uh, blessings. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. We come out with episodes every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. Uh, and yeah, I, I look forward to seeing you guys in upcoming episodes. Be blessed. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo 
promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.